Hi folks, this is Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things we can all do to live a better life, if times get tough or even if they don't. Today is August the 22nd, 2019. This is episode 2496 of the Survival Podcast. We're about to finish the week, man. We've got today and tomorrow. we got listener calls for you today. This is the show that you're in charge of. And uh, i got a confession to make. Somewhere along the way in all of my madman sorting within Outlook, yes, I'm an old fart and I still use Outlook for my email, uh, I shoved a whole shitload of calls into a folder for some reason or another because all the calls you guys make to the Think Line, which is how you get on a show like today, 866-65-THINK, 866-65-THINK. You call that number, leave me a message, and uh, you might get on a show like this. Well, a bunch of you did that, ranging from March up through about late to early May, somewhere in there. And somehow, like, this whole block of calls, I, I shoved into, like, a folder of a subfolder of a subfolder, and I was running some search stuff today, and I'm like, what the hell is all this? This should all be done and gone and out of here. And I tracked down to the folder that all the crap was in, and I found the buttload of calls that I never answered, and I'm really sorry. I'm serious. I'm sorry. Uh, just because you call in does not mean you will get on the air. I get calls, I'm like, I just don't want to answer that question. I get calls that are like, I don't understand what that person's asking. Uh, but I try to answer as many of them as I can, and, and, and most of them are good calls. I think actually I sorted them as to these are calls that are really good calls that I'll pull in in different shows for different – I don't remember what was in my head, but I'm sorry. So I got six for you today. Three are brand-new calls, and three are calls from, like, March. I'm sorry, but they're good calls for everybody, so I will keep working on that, and you guys can keep working on getting on the air by making your calls to – 866-65-THINK. Anyway, what do we got going on today? Here's what we got. I got a question on converting over to a worm composting operation if you're using a commercial compost bin. And it ain't that you can't do it. It's that, well, there's the reason worm bins are built the way that worm bins are built. Um, next up today, um, I have a question on small acreage protein production. Most efficient protein and I had an immediate answer in my head and then the person dropped a bomb on me I want to do it for my dogs producing protein for dogs, it's really hard for me to get my head around but we'll we'll get there because I'm like if I'm growing Dorper sheep or something this premium meat product, I am probably eating it myself but I'll talk to you about some things maybe that we can do that, that help with this um, We next we have uh, a question on how would if it, we're not talking anarchism here. We're talking minarchist libertarian. If we had a true minarchist libertarian government, which I think a lot more people are on board with than you know my view that we could actually have a stateless society at some point, um, how would you handle DUIs? You know, let's say we haven't gotten to a point where the roads are private because then the person that owns the road or the company that owns the road maintains the road, sets the standards for it. Uh, but you still have you have minarchism, but you do have, hey, we have some level of traffic enforcement on the roads. So the roads are the state's deal in this minarchist version. How do you handle DUI, given there has not yet been a victim? 
Uh, a question on life insurance. What is the right life insurance for a newly married couple? Uses for garden beds that have kind of fallen out of use. Uh, I want like a low-maintenance thing to do with them. You don't want to do heavy, intense annual production with them now. And going back to work after a long period of unemployment, being a solo entrepreneur, a solopreneur, uh, because then you have this gap, and it might be difficult to get people to give you a crack coming back to work, especially if you're in a technical field that has moved along while you were doing something else. We'll talk about all of that and more in just a minute. Before we do, let's go ahead and talk to you guys today about our quote of the week. Thursday is our quote of the week day, and I found a really great quote today that I, I really wanted to share with you. It's by Lucius Ananus Seneca, also known as Seneca the Younger, which is easier to say, who was a Greek philosopher, statesman, and Stoic, who was born about 4 B.C. and then lived for about 65 years. So made it up into, you know, upper middle age for the time. And this is what he said, and this might be one of the reasons he didn't end up stabbed to death or stoned to death or beaten to death uh, in that period. Uh, and lived to be 65 years old. He also didn't become emperor, so that, that, that takes your odds of getting stabbed or something down as well. When we, when we studied ancient Rome, we learned that, right? Anyway, he said, the greatest remedy for anger is delay. And uh, people have changed that. That's the actual written quote. But he's actually more known as saying what he didn't say, which is, time is the greatest remedy for anger. And they both mean the same thing. This is an important quote. It's an important quote in, in two ways. Let's talk about it in kind of the real concrete brick-and-mortar world. I wonder how many people would not be currently incarcerated by the state if they had allowed delay to heal their anger before they acted. I wonder how many people ended up sued and some way bankrupted or destroyed wouldn't be there if they had allowed anger to be at least somewhat tempered and healed by time. The other thing, though, is today on the Internet, we lash out in anger so quickly because we can get away with that, without, frankly, without somebody punching us in the face. Some of the things, especially the, like the social media mobs do to people, you know, these are things that people would never do if they were alone and looking that person in the eye because, yeah, they're going to get the shit smacked out of them. And this is, it's one thing when it's two people that don't really know each other and you're an F-tard and you're a libtard or whatever because, you know, they both go on about their lives and they kind of forget about each other unless that person's kind of crazy and tracks you down. Um, but when the mob attacks people, it destroys people's lives and livelihood. And I wonder how often today the feigned outrage really is outrage. It's not feigned. But no thought has gone into the anger behind it, and we're destroying people. There was a sports announcer, I don't remember his name, but this is an example of stupidity uh, going on. He was calling a tennis match, and it was one of the Williams sisters, Venus or Serena. I don't remember which one, I don't remember his name. But his entire career, which was you know blemishless for uh, decades, he was a very well-known sports announcer, was destroyed because he... Referred to one of them as a gorilla. That's very racist. Except that's not what he said. It's not even close to what he said. He said during a match, she's going gorilla on him. Gorilla like gorilla warfare. And this apparently, I don't watch tennis because I have better things to do with my life. Uh, tennis, golf go into the category of I do not have time to look at them. Uh, for me, uh, <laughs> I'm just saying. But, you know, people like it. Well, apparently in tennis... 
there is a certain way that a person handles a match or gets aggressive in a match that's referred to as going gorilla. But all of these people flipped out on this guy, and he ended up having his career destroyed due to public outrage, probably mostly by people that had never, like me, never watched a tennis match in their life, but they took no time to determine not only if the anger could be healed, but was the anger even valid? And I think that time heals anger two ways. One, time heals anger because it allows us to actually just calm the F down, to relax a little bit and realize, even though this is a transgression, even though this person did something to someone or to me, in the end, it really didn't destroy anything or break anything. It's just something that I need to take into account, and I know how to deal with this person differently or maybe not deal with them at all in the future instead of lashing out. The other reason it works, though, is sometimes you figure out that what you're pissed off about, you're wrong about. And it's probably about 50-50 in that. So remember, the greatest remedy for your anger is delay from Seneca the Younger. And then before we take your first call, hey, the jerk line is open for calls, but it's only open for calls for three more days, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, and I will close it down. And I mean, you're going to try to call it, and you're going to get, eh, 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 eh. it's going to be shut down after Saturday. I'm not going to get rid of the number. I use it for other things. But if you want to be on episode 2500, which will air next week, because we are, what are we at? 2496 today. So we are only four episodes away. Uh, and you want to be on there telling us how Survival Podcast made your life a little bit better? You can call the jerk line, 877-644-1345. Kind of last call here, guys. All right. With that, let's go ahead and take a call on composting and... Uh, I think this will be an interesting one to discuss. Hi, Jack. This is Dave. I live in Massachusetts, and I have a question about worm composting. I have an earth machine composter that is uh, half full of kitchen scraps and dead leaves. I was re-listening to your uh, food-growing show yesterday, and your description of the never-finished compost pile where you're always adding stuff and it never quite uh, breaks down uh, seems to apply to my situation. Uh, I'm wondering if I can adapt my current uh, earth machine setup to uh, to add worms. Uh, if you don't know, the earth machine, is, it's basically a black cylinder with a lid on top, and there's a plastic screen on the bottom with a, a grid pattern of square holes. I, I don't know if the screen would help or hurt. Holes are about the size of a sugar cube. You can always remove the screen if that helps. Uh, any general instructions on worm composting do's and don'ts would be great. Uh, thanks for the show. Okay, so when he described the earth machine, I thought of it as one of those things that are horizontal. And, and that's how he described it. So maybe there's more than one model called this. But when I looked up the earth machine composter, the only thing I could find, basically it looks like a very expensive, conically shaped garbage can that sits on the ground. Uh, it doesn't really look like it spins or rotates. And basically you just pile stuff into it. Uh, either way, maybe is the answer. Assuming this is like a horizontal barrel type comp compost composter, which they have gotten really, really popular uh, lately, even though they don't work very well, um, we probably can do this. So let's talk about what we need for effective worm composting. We need the ability for the thing to stay cool and damp. That's one thing we need. Uh, and we really need an ability for it to drain. 
they drain, so that's fine. If we're smart, we probably want to be able to collect the fluid that drains out. That's worm tea. It's a really good inoculum that we want to use as well as the actual compost. We need that. And we really want to create an environment where the worms can choose different areas, especially when it comes time to harvest our compost because what we would like to do is we stop feeding them in one area and we feed them in another area. Now, the way a lot of commercial worm bins work is they have layers. So when you take the, the, the bottom layer out and the worms have now migrated to the top layer and your compost comes out of there and then your new fresh layer goes back on the top and maybe there's three layers and every so often we're pulling the bottom one out in three uh, trays is a good way to think about it you really only need two to do this though and what you can do with any container that's large enough on a horizontal to be the worm bin you're looking for is just put a divider in it that the worms can easily get through so something like hardware cloth or a couple layers of chicken wire so it's got a little bit of kind of doubling up on those holes so that all the material doesn't just fall through the hole. And then you cut that in half, and you can then put your scraps on one side versus the other. And once one side's full enough and you feel like the worms have done enough good work there, take a little bit kind of as, of it as seed so there's some you know bedding, so to say, on the other side and move it over there. Uh, a little compost of manure added wouldn't hurt anything either, and then start adding your scraps to the other side. And what will happen is pretty quickly when the worms eat up everything that's left on one side, and there really ain't nothing there for them anymore, most of them will migrate over and start doing their work on the other side. Then you can just kind of sift it if you want to to get some of your worms out, if you do have any worms left in on that side, and they'll go over the other side. So you could definitely do that with one of those horizontal rotating things. You'll probably never rotate it again. And here's the problem with those rotating bins. What they're trying to do is make turning compost easy, and, and that's fine. And for those that maybe, you know, this is an old call. This is one of the old ones from, like, March. Sorry, really, sorry. Um, it, when you do composting, especially if you're trying to do a hot turning compost, it's like baking a cake, and you take a, a, a third of the batter, and you put that third of a batter in a cake pan, and you stick it in your 325 or 350 degree oven, and it starts baking. And three minutes into the bake, you pull it out, and you take a tablespoon more of the baking, uh, the, the, the batter, and you throw it on the cake, and you stick it back in there. And then every two to three minutes, and sometimes it's 10 minutes, and sometimes it's one minute, and sometimes 30 seconds, you're opening up the door of the oven, pulling it out, and throwing another tablespoon or two in, and you want to end up with a really great cake. It's not going to happen. Now, if the earth machine is what I saw online, which is basically a conical-shaped container, it's a little over waist-high with a lid that locks and a door on the bottom that you open and some holes in the side, which is not how you described it, I don't think that would make a great worm bin. It really would not. Uh, you do not want an active hot compost pile because if the center of the compost pile is 160 degrees, you will cook your worms dead. You want kind of a layer of already broken down stuff for your worms to hide in and just new stuff continuously added on, which they'll keep breaking down. And as they create castings, which are worm poop, and new worms, they'll just kind of build that up until you get your harvestability out of it. However, that kind of composter can work. Just don't ever buy one. In the MSB, if you're a member, there is an old, old, old-ass video there where I built a, a three-bin composting system out of three cheap, 
you know, brute um, garbage cans from Lowe's or Home Depot. You can get them for about 28 bucks. Sometimes they're on sale for lower 20s. Uh, sometimes they're about 32. It all depends. And you can get smaller ones too, but the ones I used, I think, were the 32 gallon ones. And basically, I took a piece of uh, four inch PVC pipe with the holes in it. That goes in the middle and uh, drilled some holes around the bottom and the top so there's some airflow. Then you got a lid that clamps on there and you just throw all your scraps in there. Now you say, Jack, how is that any different than baking the cake? It's a little bit of baking the cake wrong, but we're never going to turn it. What you're going to do with that type of compost, this is a very slow composting system, and it works in some ways kind of like a worm system without worms, and we just throw everything that we want to compost in there. But we never turn it. We just allow some airflow through it, and critters are going to colonize it, and bugs are going to go in there, and uh, you're probably going to have a black soldier flies colonizing it at some point and running everything else out, and who knows? And you're not going to do anything except fill it up. And when it's full, you go to your second bin. And this is why it takes a long time to fill one with the average household because as you're filling it and it's breaking down, it keeps taking longer and longer and longer to fill it. So you're going to keep throwing shit in there till it's full. Okay? And this includes sometimes when you rake the leaves, you throw some leaves in there. You cut the grass, rake up a little grass, throw it in there. Not huge amounts, but a little bit here and there. Big handful of this, a little handful of that. Neighbor throws a bag of leaves out, you go over and grab it, and every time you throw some food in there, grab a handful of leaves and drop it in. That, and you can do this with these roundy-toundy ones. They just don't need to be roundy-toundy. <laughs> and you just fill it up and leave it alone. And this is why you want two to three of them. So you go out and you buy your second one, because it takes about five minutes to build one of these things if you own a hole saw. And even if you don't, you can probably use quarter-inch drill, or I mean a half-inch drill bit and get by instead of what I do in the MSB. And you build another one, you start filling it up. Well, when that one's full, you build a third one and start filling it up. When the third one's full, the first one's ready to use. And some of you get by with two of them, depending on how much waste you produce that you can compost. And, and that's like the most passive way. And that's the other, the reason I even went through that is that other version of the earth machine thing that just sits on the ground, it work, would work that way. You know what else will work that way? Chicken wire and a tarp. I'm serious, you take some, you know, like some chicken wire fencing uh, or any kind of like horse fencing, goat fencing, whatever, you have some extra, make a big hoop out of it about as big around as a garbage can. You know, you can just basically cut one end of it so that, they're, that you, you leave one end where it's got long kind of stick-out stabby cut-you ends to it. You cut off on the far end of the, the vertical, and then you can just use that to wire together. If it's chicken wire, that doesn't really work, so you get a couple pieces of baling wire or something like that, or zip ties, and just make a hoop and then put that somewhere in the shade and throw all your crap in there and keep a tarp over it. And then when it's full, start another one. Like, And you don't even really have to tarp the whole thing. It's just this is better practice to do. Um, but I like the garbage cans because they do kind of keep critters out fairly well. Um, you can even rig them up with a little piece of rope and a, a, a like a, what do you call it? a bungee a bungee cord cheap bungee cord across the top so it's real not inconvenient to take off when you put stuff in it. That's the easiest passive way I know. Worms is great as well. My problem with worms here is wherever I put a worm bin, the ants kill all the worms. 
Um, and then, you know, chicken composting is my favorite. Any more composting questions, get them in. I love this stuff because it's about building fertility. We're going to talk more about that on Monday in a cool way. Anyway, let's take another one. This one on protein production for your canines. Hey, Jack. This is Zach from southern Utah. Here's my question. What are my best options for efficient protein production on a homestead in the 8 to 10 acre range? Details. My family and I will eventually be getting a couple of Hungarian beefles, a type of bird dog, to train and hunt with. We want a significant portion of their diet to consist of raw protein. Options we have considered are tractoring rabbits, rotational grazing sheep and or goats, quail, aquaponics, or even a combination of several of these options. Chicken and duck eggs, as well as old laying hens and cold roosters from systems we already have established, will definitely be in their diet as well. Ideally, I want to raise meat with the fewest inputs possible and only keep breeding stock to feed through the winter. This goal is steering me in the direction of ruminants that can be raised on pasture, especially because I have a lot of needed infrastructure already in place, but I'm keeping an open mind. All processing of the animals will be done on my farm. We have plenty of freezer space to stock up after butchering. Bone and organ meat will be fed to the dogs to increase usage efficiency and ensure a balanced diet. All sanitation and health precautions will be taken regarding the meat, and I also plan on relying somewhat on conventional feed options if and when necessary. If you would advise against a raw diet for dogs, consider this question in the context of simply raising meat for my family because we will definitely be enjoying the fruits of this labor in addition to the dogs. My wife stays at home and is looking forward to the experience of animal husbandry, and my kids will be part of the process too. I know this is a pretty unique question, but I'd love to hear your thoughts on some of our better options. Thanks, Jack. So I'm going to start out with one that this is a little bit hard for me to even do because I can't see raising animals specifically for dogs. And I know you said your family would use quite a bit of the meat as well. And okay, that, then that's a little bit easier for me to get my head around. But um, I've always seen like the livestock I raise, whatever is not something that I want a consumer to use and is edible by my dogs, they get that. Uh, so I don't really see it as raising meat for them. Straight up protein production, except you can't breed it yourself and you're going to have to feed it supplemental feed. Uh, you cannot beat, in my opinion, broad-breasted bronze turkeys. Uh, they pasture well. Uh, they're kind of cool to have around. They're kind of really smart and totally stupid at the same time. It's a weird thing. Uh, that's the best way I can describe them. And I'm going to be raising them again next year. I took a year off, but uh, definitely going to be doing them again next year. And next year I'm going to do all hens, even though they're a bit smaller. They're still, you know, 26 to 30 pound animals. Uh, and you end up with a carcass weight. I say 26, 30. You get a carcass rate depending on how long you raise them for with female uh, broad-breasted bronze, somewhere between the smallest one I've ever done is 22, and my heaviest was right at 30 pounds. So that's that's a pretty big animal uh, for a hen, uh, but it probably doesn't fit what you're looking to do. As far as the most efficient thing you can do, you probably can't beat rabbit because your dog can pretty much eat the whole rabbit. Um, ben, uh, not sorry, yeah, not Ben. Uh, Nick Ferguson, uh, who's taken a sabbatical from the expert council for a project he was on, um, raises them for his uh, dogs. And when he wants to feed the dog a rabbit, he just takes one of the bunnies that's achieved sufficient size for that, does a cervical dislocation to euthanize it, and just throws the dog the whole damn thing. And the dog eats whatever part of it the dog chooses to eat. And, you know, that's about as efficient as he gets. Uh, Courtney's quail. 
would be really good as well. Now, you're not going to probably tractor them, though you could. You could build a quail tractor. You need a bottom on a quail tractor is the problem, uh, in my experience, to be able to move them without killing them or have something kill them or have them getting crushed. Uh, but they are pretty fantastic for humans and animals alike. And, again, you're talking about an animal that you can euthanize by popping its head off like a dove in a, in a hunting field. And uh, you can you can even, if you don't want to give them all the feathers and everything, if you want to pull out uh, prime pieces for them, like let's say the internals, the breasts, and the legs, uh, you can just yank that out and feed them to them. I have no problem, and I mean I have absolutely zero problem with um, dogs eating raw uh, animal product, raw animal protein. Uh, it's it's just something that I've I've never had a problem with, and I, I had the good fortune to meet uh, through the internet a, a gal named Lou Olson who has a PhD in canine nutrition, and she's wrote an entire book on this. I can't remember what it's called, but I will look it up and throw it in the show notes for you. And and the main thing she recommends feeding her dogs is uh, is raw chicken. So. You can definitely do that. I mean, probably one of the things that you could do that would be pretty efficient is chickens. Because you don't really care if they're an optimal meat bird or something like that. You just got to make sure you're, you're you're doing some level of processing, I would say. Or you're going to teach the dog that chicken equals food. Um, so, you, you know, you can... You can hatch the hell out of chickens, so that would be something you can do. But I, I'm glad to hear you say that you plan on at least um, feeding the dogs somewhat uh, from you know brought-in food because you're going to have to. And, and let me kind of break it down for you as to why. If you had one dog, and it's an average-sized dog, 70 to 80, 85 pounds, then the amount of a meat and bone and gut and everything ration all in that you need to feed that dog to keep that dog healthy on a daily basis is at least two and a quarter pounds. Now, two and a quarter times 365, double it, take quarter of 365, add it back up, 821.25. 821 and a quarter pounds. That's what my brain says. You can check my math, but it's going to be somewhere in the neighborhood 820 pounds a year to feed a dog. Well, just continuing to do that math, if you have two dogs of that size, it's 1642 and a half? Yeah, that sounds right, yeah. So now you need 1,650-odd pounds of, uh, of animal product to feed two dogs for a year. So if you're running some kind of an operation where you're not just growing for yourself, but you're growing for... Um, you know, for market and you're doing your own processing and all, you might with scraps and, you know, certain cuts going to the dogs and bones and, and what have you, be able to get up to that level. Because remember, if we go to feeding dogs meat, which is what they should be eating, there's no doubt about that. That's the main thing a dog should be eating. You should always start with something that came from something with a face. Um, then you, uh, Then, then you got to get all your calories from it. They're not like us, where maybe they could get some of their calories and some of their nutrition needs, um, you know, from from potatoes or, or you know vegetables and things like that. They're not really into that. Uh, now, and, and that's the whole reason we generally get off feeding them commercial feed. So, um, the other thing you could do, though, just occurred to me when, when I got this question: is maybe you don't need to be growing anything for them at all. 
there, you know, there was the old uh, joke they used to make about really, really old horses. They're going to go to the glue factory or they're going to go to the dog food factory. And maybe there's some truth in that. And if you maybe check around your local area, you may find that people have older uh, animals that need to be put down. And they just don't want to do it. And these could be, you know, horses or mules or who knows what. And, you know, that might be a viable option. And there may be some people that would just give you the animal because they can't, they know what needs to be done. This animal's reached the end of life. Uh, and they don't really want to feed it anymore or what have you, and but they don't want to do it because they've had this animal for a long time. Uh, or they're just culling you know, old goats that aren't really worth much from the standpoint of money or something like that. Like You can check Craigslist and stuff like that and find people doing maybe different things with that and ask them do they know anybody or anything like that. Or when they have somebody that comes to them and they don't want the animal to let you know, that type of thing, and maybe that's another option. Um, but yeah, that's, that's all I got for you on that one. Let's take another one. Hey Jack, this is A.A. Foringer, the writer and the storyteller. I've been pondering about libertarian think and voluntarism. And I was wondering where does DUIs driving while under the influence fall into the crimes code of a libertarian state. There is no victim, but there is potential victims. I don't want to see anybody drink and drive, of course, but where does a DUI fall into a libertarian law enforcement? No victim, but it seems like a good idea. Thanks for all you do, Jack. I'll be waiting for your response. Well, the answer is we're not sure because we've never really had a true minarchist libertarian government, certainly not uh, in a time frame consistent with modern roads and modern vehicles. We did at one time have much more lax laws on DUI. And when I look at the total numbers for things, I'm not really sure that we have a lot less... Uh, motor vehicle fatalities and serious injuries due to DUI than we did before we had all these onerous laws that have destroyed a lot of people's lives. I agree with you, though. We don't want people driving around tanked up. Um, I, I'll throw something out here first. Without the massive amount of government regulation that has made it where you can't build a decent car for people anymore for you know twelve fifteen thousand dollars, which we should be able to do. Twelve fifteen thousand dollars is a significant amount of money, and we should be able to build a reasonable car. And I'm talking about a car that today sells for about thirty four to thirty five thousand. We should be able to build that car with reasonable safety enhancement as the market desires. Uh, for about that price. And the regulations are not just about the cars. They're about every material in the car. They're about workers, re you know, regulations involving workers. They're about regulations about imports and exports. It, 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 you know, if you had all the regulations that affected building one car, printed out two side a page on pieces of paper through the full supply chain and delivery system, uh, uh, dealerships, financing, all the stuff that goes into it, all those regulations... I bet if you had a 10 by 10 room, they wouldn't fit in there, stack ceiling the floor. 
So there, if that just hear me out on that, if that wasn't the case, would we, you know, ten years prior to today already have cars driving themselves? And at that point, does it matter if the person that's riding in the car that's driving itself is drunk? And I think long term, the solution to this problem is self-driving vehicles because don't really care if you're drunk if you're sleeping in a car while it drives itself home for you. And when people say, oh, my God, the person has to be paying attention because what if they – by the time this happens, guys, you're going to have vehicles with no person in them driving. Like when you get an Uber, if there's nobody that wants to go past you that the Uber's doubling up on because you've selected that option, a vehicle with no one in it is going to pull up that you're going to get into. So if that's okay, then being drunk in that vehicle is okay too. All right? So I think technology is a long-term solution here. Now, let's look at another – aspect of this though with the world we have today I think that what we've done by making it about a blood alcohol number that has continuously been driven down due to feels versus science and versus reality is we now cite people for driving under the influence who are in most instances okay to drive Now, we've all seen people driving who shouldn't be driving, and by and large, people that are that intoxicated don't seem to be deterred very much by DUI laws, because at that point, they are so mentally impaired that they're not thinking about that. That's why they did it. In the, like, if you know you're that drunk, you know you shouldn't drive, but because you're that drunk, you do it anyway. And the person that always thinks about it is the person that's you know could be or may not be a little bit over, but still clear of thought. They're the one that decides whether they're going to get a car or not, you know, or just stay put or have somebody drive them or, or what have you. Um, and I cannot be dishonest here intellectually. I cannot say that the DUI laws don't make people think a little bit harder, but I am saying probably most of the people that think a little bit harder, well. Those people that think a little bit harder, most of them probably would have been fine to drive anyway. And you can cite and tell me you're mad because you have a friend who's paralyzed because somebody was drunk hit him or whatever. And I also wonder how many of those instances where they say, well, the driver was impaired by alcohol, they've made that determination solely because he was over .08, and maybe the accident would have happened anyway. But now it becomes because the state has declared a, a number they've pulled out of their ass, because if .10 was good enough for how many years, why did we change it? And there's actually a movement in a lot of places now to move that number from .08 to .04, which, you know, you're over .04 with like a beer and a half if you're a big dude and probably three-quarters of a beer if you're a little girly man or most women. Well, no one, no one, unless you have a predisposition, is impaired from driving because they had a beer. That is not a thing. That is bullshit. Um, you are far more likely to get a wreck because you were on a, on a, a, a phone texting somebody than because you had a beer. So there's no doubt that the law is unfair, but it also is somewhat effective in preventing the people you don't want driving from driving. So the solution then would be to find a way to keep those people from driving in the first place that doesn't involve incarcerating people who have not actually harmed anybody and without screwing their lives up. And I don't know. If you left the market market and you made it really easy, and if you think of let's look at it this way. 
since the dawn of Uber and Lyft, which had to have had to fight tooth and nail for their for their very existence, the that has had a, a and you can look at the numbers, the 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 number of DUIs, both just arrests and actual accidents attributed to alcohol has plummeted. It's not gone, but but Uber and Lyft have had a bigger effect on dropping DUIs than any law ever has. And, for instance, in Austin, when they pushed them out, the DUI number shot straight back up. So the market provided a solution in spite of the government getting in the way. So I think the more solutions that you had, because, again, we're not talking about an anarchist society. We're talking about a minarchist libertarian society. That was a scenario I was given. So I'm not working at this from an anarchist level. Okay, there's different solutions there. I'm coming at this from a minarchist level. There is John Law policing Marauds. Okay, so don't get mad at me. Don't try to take my, you know, my voluntarist card away. I'm not going that far. I'm going to minarchist. I think if you had the free market totally set up to the point where there were lots of solutions for D for to avoid people that are impaired from driving, like Uber and Lyft. Um, solutions where, you know, if you got out of everybody's way, and if somebody wanted to provide, you know, a wingman service, which is where a chase vehicle, like two people come out, take you home, and then that way your car's home, and maybe that costs a little bit more, but nowhere near, or about the same as a cab, but something akin to a private cab is even cheaper because you don't have to have 27 different ways you've pleased the government. Um, then the people that are truly impaired, those people would be at least a little bit more, it would be a little bit more legitimate in having some sort of a penalty. I also think that maybe those people would be better served in a minarchist society with a fine rather than the utter destruction of their lives that comes with the DUI. And maybe that fine is even significant, and then maybe that fine is put aside For they had a thing in Pennsylvania at one time called the Cat Fund for catastrophic loss. It was for people that were severely injured by uninsured, underinsured motorists who even their own insurance wasn't enough to cover what happened to them. Uh, especially like, let's say somebody's hit on the side of the road by an uninsured motorist. They're standing there. Well, their car insurance doesn't cover them, right? So that was they called that a Cat Fund. It didn't work really well. It was basically a tax instead of something like this, but if you had something like that, then maybe those funds are set aside to help people that are injured by or survivors of, of people that have lost people to death or some way compensated from that fund. That might be a way. I mean, I don't know. See, I don't personally trust the state to do anything right, but all of that's better than what we have now. Additionally, it seems to me that unless an officer notices driving, so we're back to, we do have officers in this minarchist society. So let's say I'm a cop and I pull you over for speeding, but you drove the car perfectly fine. You pulled over. You did everything I asked you to do. When I talk to you, maybe you smell a little bit like you've been drinking, but you're not, you're not, you know, and, and, and you can have a normal conversation with me. Then, hey, you know what? I don't need to have, I don't, in my opinion at that point, I don't have probable cause just because you were going five miles over the speed limit to even do a sobriety check on you. 
that policy alone might really help with the unnecessary prosecution of victimless crimes. And what has to go are the so-called safety checkpoints. That crap has to stop. That's where we, we're, we're stopping people for no reason at all, and if we have any suspicion, putting them through the ringer. And that, that I can tell you, would be eliminated immediately. This is not an easy one. Um, but I think that if we let the free market free market, the problem itself would be severely mitigated. Let's take another one. Hey, Jack, could refurbished uh, shipping containers with high-energy appliances and solar and maybe a natural gas or propane tank hookup, could those be a good alternative for housing when uh, you're considering uh, someone who wants to move every couple of years? They don't know where they're going to eventually settle down, but they want the the luxuries of having a okay, somewhat sized house, but also they might have restrictions such as if they're, they live with, they own a, a large breed dog, a lot of owners won't rent to them. Um, they don't find house or apartments very favorable as opposed, as opposed to maybe just finding a cheap piece of land, having it fenced in. And then if you have a 30 or $40,000 refurbished shipping container with a 30 or $40,000 uh, mortgage on a piece of land that would be a whole lot more uh, efficient than buying a two hundred fifty thousand dollar house. A lot less hassle. You could ship a container across the United States for like four or five thousand dollars. Just curious what your thoughts are on that. And thanks for all your your help and your podcast, Jack. Thanks, John from Orlando. Uh, to be completely honest, there, I think what you're looking for is an RV. Um, for the cost of doing all that, there are tons of like really nice fifth wheel RVs. I'm talking, you know, you can you can pick those up for seventy percent of their price as a new RV or less, and you're talking some of them are four to five years old and barely been used because. People always do the same thing with an RV. They buy an RV, they think they're going to use it, and then they don't. And eventually they face the facts, and then they sell it. So uh, that that's kind of like a top-end cost. There's a lot of them out there, 10 years old, perfectly serviceable, definitely good enough to live in, could use a few little things fixed up at 50% of what you'd pay for a new one. And everything you need is already there. And as long as you can get power installed on a piece of property, if you're going to buy your own piece of property... Um, you know, you, you plug right in, basically say, I need a, whatever it is, a 50 amp or whatever it is, uh, plug in included with this power pad and basically just drop in a, a concrete pad on that piece of property you're talking about to put the RV on. That way it's there long term. It ain't going to go nowhere. It ain't going to sink in the dirt if it rains or whatever and, and throw up a fence. And, and I mean, you're in business with your dogs and you're good to go. Uh, cause you're going to need power anyway for your, your uh, your your idea with a container. I don't like the container idea for a bunch of reasons. Um, number one, if you're going to put living conditions inside one of these things, it's going to be tough to make it really mobile ready in a lot of ways. It's going to take a lot of extra work to do that. Next, you're probably not going to have something that's going to be pulled up onto a platform. You're probably going to, if you're going to be using it as a house, it's probably something that's going to be moved with a crane up onto a truck. And whatever it's going to cost to have that thing moved, 
If you don't want to move your own RV, I promise you it's going to cost you less to have some redneck with a fifth wheel in the back of his pickup do it. Um, and you could have it moved anywhere, wherever you're going. I think you're looking for an RV, not a, not a shipping container. I think shipping container housing has some potential, but I don't think it has a ton of potential as mobile housing. You're talking about commercial grade, you know, CDL driver vehicles necessary to move them around. And when you go out and you get pricing, like how much does it take to get a shipping container from here to there, and you get a rough estimate, which is probably what you did, there's a lot of assumptions made about what the heck that means. Um, additionally, if you're going to turn it into a house and you're going to start building all kinds of crap in it, you really got to look at weight because there's weight limitations and weight distribution and things like that where when someone that's a professional company builds an RV, it's designed to go places. So I know that maybe isn't what you want to hear, but I would like to kind of add to it to where maybe it makes a little more sense. We have... For instance, one outbuilding, it's an 8 by 8 outbuilding. I don't remember exactly how much it cost, but it was somewhere under $1,500 to have that building put in. And, I mean, we went down to Home Depot said, I want this color and this kind of roof and what have you, and put that in for me, and somebody showed up and did it in a day. We have another one that's pretty damn big with a loft, and it's a couple 3000 bucks. I think all in was about four grand with somebody building it for us. So anywhere in between those, you could have a building or two small buildings that are kind of like your little compound there. Um, and if you have power, you have power. You can put power to them. One of them can even be your little mini kitchen. You can throw a little high-efficiency window unit air conditioner on and turn it when you need it and have more kind of outdoor. You think about setting up an RV with a couple um, outbuildings kind of flanking it with the doors facing each other. Build yourself a little temporary deck there. And you've got kind of this little compound going on, and you have an awning for your RV, and that's kind of your porch. I think you'd live better that way than you ever would with a giant steel container being moved around. And then here's the thing. When you try to sell that container, because you always have an exit plan, you're never going to get out of it what you have into it, plus the cost of moving it, etc. If you have a fifth-wheel RV that you were smart about how you bought it, you bought it new, you take care of it, odds are you're going to sell it for somewhere close to what you paid for it. And you will be able to sell it. And even if you sell it for half of what you paid for it, I think financially you're going to come out way ahead. Additionally, if you decide to sell that piece of land when you leave, if you're making a move where you plan on going somewhere else, you might roll it all right in and sell it that way. So somebody buying it, you're, you're kind of selling it. Hey, you just move in. you got an RV to live in. Now you build your house. Unless your plan is to take it with you and then keep that land and become a real estate collector of raw land. Okay, that's fine too. Let me put one bug of warning on you, though. You said, I'll get a mortgage for that piece of property. It's, it's, it's not as easy to get a mortgage for a piece of raw land, especially without it being a construction loan where you tend to build and you got all of everything set up. You just want to buy the raw land. It's a lot more difficult, shorter-term financing and what have you, but it, it still can work. You can do it. But I, I, I'm, I'm not keen on this giant shipping container um, idea because... Again, it requires specialized means with which to move it. It's a lot of work. Every construction project of any size always costs more than you think it's going to. When you buy an RV, you know this is an RV. This is how much it costs. This is everything that's good with it. And if something needs to be replaced, you can get with the manufacturer and say, well, it needs this new part. Well, you know how much that part's going to cost you before you buy it. 
you know, either you can install it or you're going to have to take it to a shop and get it installed. And you can always find somebody with a one-ton truck to move the damn thing. So that's where I'm coming from. And, you know, if you needed even more space, you could go find yourself, a, a you know, a hitch pull second one. For you know, there's a bunch of them out there for three to five thousand bucks like that. They're not great, but they're okay. Like kind of hunting camp level ones that could be like again, you're thinking compound. I think that makes more sense in my opinion. Uh, that's what I would do if I wanted a mobile place to live. I would buy a mobile house. Let's take another one. Hey Jack, Aaron from Brooklyn, New York here. Question: What is the best life insurance for a newly married couple? over the course of their life. Details. My wife and I recently got married, and we're looking into life insurance. Our goal is to have it by February. The details. Is there a better time of the year to buy life insurance? Which, which is better, whole life term, term to 90, term to 60? Guide us in the right direction. Thank you for all that you do. Have a great day. Well, starting out, experts say on the amount, you know, it's depending on who you ask, it'll be five years or ten years of the income of the person that's being insured. That could be an awful lot, um, and not everybody can afford to do that. The good news is you don't have to as you save money and build your assets up because then you get into a situation where you're self-insured. So if you have a quarter million dollars socked away, um that's a quarter million dollars of insurance you don't need, especially as both of you get older. Um, 100% term. I hate, hate, hate with a passion and extreme prejudicial hatred whole life. Whole life is the devil. Whole life is evil. And if you're about to email me and tell me how wonderful it is, don't. Don't waste your time. Don't waste your energy. There is nothing you can say. You can show me a picture of Jesus on Buddha's shoulders like they're playing the, with the, the game where they fight when one person's on the other person's shoulders and they fight. Jesus sitting on Buddha's shoulders, and both of them are screaming that whole life is better than term, and I still won't believe it, so don't waste your energy and my time trying to make the case whole life is the devil. Now, what you can do if you think whole life is a good idea is figure out how much insurance you need. By term, take the difference and invest that. And pretty soon you'll see why I'm right. And I won't go any further on it than that. Um, as far as which type of term, it depends. What is your income level? How is your future going? This is something you can always buy more of in the future. There's a lot of different options out there. And I think finding out what all the options you have. So finding a good uh, broker agent is the best way. Life insurance, don't talk to anybody that has one product to show you. And if they say, well, I work for Mutual, blah, 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 but we have you know, ways you can invest. No, that's not who I'm talking I'm talking about a person that doesn't give a shit what company's product you buy. I'm talking about a broker. And say, we need term insurance in the amount of at least. Tell me what you got in 10-year, 20-year, 30-year, term to 90. Uh, declining 30-year term, all of it. And then work it out for yourself what makes the most sense for you. Declining term is something that works really good for people that buy a house and they're really convinced that they're not going to move. And, and they also feel like this. If one of us dies, the other person is going to want to stay in this house. Because what you can do then is if the house is a $300,000 house, you buy a 300000 30-year declining term, assuming you have a 30-year mortgage, and then the mortgage will decline in how much, the, the insurance will decline in coverage every year, 
and we should leave you enough money to pay for your house at just about any point that one of you guys would kick the bucket. So now the house is paid for. That's, that's a strategy you have to look at. What is the actual speed at which the decline is versus the amortization of the mortgage? And by getting real quotes and real, you know, real policy coverage, you can figure that out. You might find that you need, there are term policies that are declining term that basically don't decline for the first five years. And then they begin declining over 25 years, specifically to cover mortgages. If you have a 15-year mortgage, you don't need 30-year declining term for that. See, so you don't have to insure everything in your life with one policy. You can have declining term on your house, and then you can have term for all your other needs. Understand what life insurance is for. It's not for you. It's for the person you leave behind when you die. Notice I didn't say if you die. I said when you die, because you will die. Now, will you die first? No, but somebody will be left to get it. Now, here's my opinion. When you're really old and you're taking care of yourself and you've got your final expenses accounted for, um, you've taken care of your arrangements and you know, like, so that they don't think they need to spend 20 grand on a funeral when you're fine with, you know, cremate me and spread my ashes at the park. So you've taken care of that so they don't have to make that decision. You don't need to be buying insurance for people that have incomes of their own and lives of their own and what have you. Their inheritance should be what you have left. Um, so that's why when we looked at everything, and Dorothy and I made our decision many years ago, it was incredibly cheap for us to buy term to 90. And Dorothy is a bit older than me, so odds are that if I make 90, she won't be here. So I, I, you know, if I make 90, you know, I don't need it. She doesn't need it. So it, it was almost like buying insurance for our entire life for a fraction of the cost of whole life. Now, I know the whole life raw, raw people don't bother me. You're wasting my time. would say, but see, you would have a cash value. You could, uh, Whatever. The amount of money we save makes your claim look stupid. Okay? Because it was so stupid cheap that way. So you want term that fits your situation. And if you have a good financial advisor, especially one that doesn't sell insurance, that actually does care about your total financial picture, they may be able to sit down and help you figure out what you really need to insure for. Um, financial advisors that sell insurance almost exclude, not all of them. If you find one of the exceptions, it's also an insurance broker. That's fine. But you, generally, they sell a single product attached to whatever mothership they're attached to. You know, they work for one company and then they do blah, blah, blah. And then either that company has also offers insurance or they have some sort of agreement. Um, Again, it's always hard to find a good financial advisor. It really is, um, especially for the average person that doesn't have a couple million bucks or a high net worth or a high uh, net income uh, because there's limits to who the best people can actually even work with. A lot of what they want to do for you, they can't even do for you if you're not what's called accredited. Uh, but that's you want term, avoid whole life like the plague, and if you if you really think there's anything to whole life, Price the difference, pretend you're buying whole life and save the difference, and I promise you, you'll be happy. Life insurance is in for insuring your income. It's not for investing. Separate the two. Do not put them together. Anybody that tells you to do so is either wrong or evil. Let's take another one. Jack, what would you do with unused garden beds? Um, I have about six. They're about 4 by 14. Uh, some of them are a little smaller. 
Um, I'm only using one this year uh, for vegetables. The rest are unused, and they got overtaken by weeds um, and grasses and everything else. I'm tarping all of them right now, the unused ones. Uh, I should have put a cover crop in there. I didn't. Uh, but I've also thought about things like um, either uh, potatoes, which actually did well for several years in one without replanting, um, but it's overtaken by weeds now, and Jerusalem artichokes I've considered, or um, even comfrey, something like that. So uh, if you have any other ideas or specific recommendations for cover crops, that'd be great. Um, you know, most of them I would want to be perennial, but I, w I could manage one as an annual cover crop thing. Um, uh, my chickens have all passed away, so I don't have any animals at the moment. Um, but uh, I'm in Virginia. Thanks a lot. Bye. Okay, first up, given this is not one of the old calls that I, I, I let slip and a brand new call, uh, being in Virginia in late August, none of the stuff that you mentioned, except maybe comfrey, makes sense to plant right now. So I wholly endorse tarping these beds over your winter. Uh, with the only exception would be if you don't mind spending the effort, you've got plenty of time to throw a cover crop in them. Uh, you could even tarp them, let's see, you could tarp them right now for two weeks, and about two weeks from now, uh, pull that tarp off and hit them with a, a good, uh, like, a winter rye um, or a triticale or something like that, and it'll it'll grow well into your winter. It may eventually kill, but it'll, it'll do nice things, let's put it that way, and it will choke the shit out of those weeds for you. Um, or you can just leave them tarp through the winter. E either one's fine. I would personally, if I was going to tarp them through the winter, because you're not sure what you're going to do with them yet, uh, I would go get yourself a couple straw bales, and I would put a great big old thick layer of straw. Don't even worry about the fact that you got weeds or whatever. Just put it right on top of it and tarp over that, and you will have beautiful-looking beds when we get to spring and you're ready to plant. At that point, everything you said makes sense. You know, uh, Jerusalem artichoke would work. Potato would work in your climate. Sweet potato will work in your climate. I don't know how well both of those are going to overwinter, but you said you've gotten some potato overwintering before, so that works. Uh, what it sounds like you really want to do is move more to a perennial, uh, low-management crop that doesn't require a lot of weeding. So something that gets up high enough that it kind of overcompetes with the weeds. Uh, your berry crops are your most obvious, but you just need to make sure it's what you really want because if you plant blackberry in there, which would be a great crop, uh, especially something like a primacane blackberry, like prime arc or prime gem varieties you can look up, or just go to Google and search for prima, P-R-I-M-A, space cane, space blackberry and you'll find a whole bunch of different new ones that are available what those do is they're going to produce a, a, a early crop for you on last year's canes just like normal blackberries do but then they're going to grow new canes that are also going to produce in the fall and then all you do is prune those down and then prune your two-year-old canes out and then next year you're going to get two crops. So you get a late early crop and a late crop that way. Or regular blackberries like uh, Navajo would be a great one to grow. Uh, raspberries are great in your climate. I'm jealous. I can't grow raspberries with a dam around here between the alkaline soil and the heat um, and, the, and the lack of rainfall uh, would be great. 
if you have somewhat acidic soil or if you're willing to push it acidic with some, you know, azalea fertilizer is an easy way to do it. Um, blueberry would be great in your climate. But any of these perennial shrubs are going to get really thick, heavy root systems. And if you ever decide you want to go back to vegetable farming on those, it's going to be really hard to eradicate. So just be sure that that's what you really want to do. But that's, that's the direction that I would personally go if I wanted to move toward the perennial side of things is, is bushes that are bushes or cane fruit. Uh, blueberry, blackberry, uh, raspberry, uh, chief among them. Elderberry would be a great, I don't know how many of these beds you have. Uh, and, and, and certainly you could kind of make little micro food forests out of them with, you know, some blueberry and then some blackberry and some elderberry, except elderberry spreads a lot, gets really, really, all of those spread a lot and get really big. So you're going to have to do some pruning and maintenance if you do that. But that's where I would go. And then you can, you know, you can play with some stuff on the borders and edges. You can do herbs, um, perennial herbs that may or may not overwinter in your climate. I'm not sure exactly what part of Virginia you're in, uh, but annuals that are really cool on the borders uh, that are really neat as far as a salad vegetable and an edible flower would be something like nasturtium, which should do really well, or calendula should do really well, or any of those things can be grown on the borders. Uh, and any remember that like the key to controlling weeds, if you want to do it with, with competing vegetation, is cover as much as you can as fast as you can all the time. And if you do that, you advantage one and disadvantage the other. You're not going to have a big problem with weeds. And if there's a little bit of weed action going on down there, as long as it's not big, tall, woody weeds, who gives a damn? Who cares? If you got, you know, blackberry, eventually it'll it'll win the war against anything. Just be sure it's what you want before you do it. Because you might decide, you know, I really want to go back to gardening. So maybe let's say you had four of these beds. Maybe you do something like cane fruits or blueberries or something in two of them. And the other two, maybe you throw some comfrey in there or whatever, and it's it's kind of still open uh, to possibly going back to vegetable gardening one day a little bit easier. Uh, with that, let's take, or, you know, do an herb garden. Take one of them do an herb garden. You know, because they're going to grow so aggressively in your climate that if you just every year go in and plant, you know, some oregano, some basil, some thyme, some rosemary, just kind of map it out based on how tall everything gets, maybe some borage, pick, you know, eight to ten, maybe even a dozen herbs and plant it. Uh, you could certainly do it in peppermint, but then you're going to have a peppermint bed. You're, unless something's tall and woody, it's not going to outcompete peppermint. So be careful with peppermint, be careful with bee balm and lemon balm, but you could certainly do a multi-mint bed as well. That'd be another one that just kind of came to me. But think a little bit more about what you want and then try to tailor it to that. Let's take another one. Hey, Jack. Jason from PA here with a question for you. I know we've you know discussed how a lot of times millionaires come out of things like unemployment and whatnot because there's like nothing left to lose. Um, and in your case, you were in a you know big IT networking industry. You left to pursue a dream, you know, with your podcast, and you succeeded, and that's awesome. But not everyone does. Um, and I have a friend in a very similar background, you know, Dish Network, um, information transfer technology, all that stuff, and, you know, pursued a dream, and it, it didn't succeed, you know. And one of the things I find is, like, after you have this gap on your resume, even when I had a, a gap, it's really hard to get a foot back into working. You know, you, you don't get past that first door in the interview process where they're basically like, you're overqualified and you have a gap, so we skipped you. Um, 
any suggestions, any advice for, you know, people who pursued a dream and maybe didn't, you know, succeed at it, and now they've just got, you know, a gap there because it's self-employed or you were doing this, on, you know, on your own? It's like corporations don't really seem to recognize that. So I just thought maybe that would be a good topic for discussion or you'd have some insight, especially having, you know, owned your own business and what people can do on that. Well, I mean, the first thing I would do if somebody told me that I was overqualified for a position is push back. I would say something to the effect of, so are you just trying to soften the blow and are you, are you, you, you bullshitting me or maybe you tone that down depending on the person you're talking to? Or, or do you really feel that I'm just overqualified for the position? And if that person tells me that they really feel that way, I'm going to say, you know what, then you're getting a hell of a deal because I'll take it. Obviously, I can do it if I'm overqualified for it. I'm willing to take the ways you're willing to offer. So let's get to work and let's get something back on my resume. And then we can talk about me moving up in your company once I show you what I can do. At the point you've been told that, the amount you have to lose is zero. So try to close the deal anyway and be aggressive. There are, there are hiring managers that will be like, look, I was just trying to be nice. You need to get the hell up out of here. You were going to leave anyway, so what? There are also hiring managers, and you don't know which one you're looking at, but if you talk to enough of them, you'll find the other kind that's going to go, wait a minute. I bust my ass trying to find people that want to work this much. So that's one thing you can do. The other thing you can do is don't put self-employed on your resume. Put the name of what you were doing and put what the best industry descriptor of what you were doing is. If your primary thing you tried to do for your company was to bring business into it, put account manager, outside sales, something like that on it. And then when somebody asks you why you're coming back to the industry or back to, 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 to work or you know back to normal employment, you say, you know what, my situation in my life has changed and I've decided that... Um, you know, self-employment was great. I learned a lot from it. It's made me a hell of a, of a lot better of a of an you know as a, of a candidate for a company like yourself. But because of these changes in my life, it's just not right for me anymore. And and I want to finish out. That's the thing. I want to finish out my career uh, as an employee. And I really think I can help your company buy and then have a freaking thing to say with that. It, the, the the number one reason. People don't get hired into jobs. They know nothing about the company that they're applying for. They know nothing about the job in that company other than what the company put online of a set of bullet points. Nine times out of ten, the person you're interviewing with didn't even write the job description or certainly didn't get the final say in how it looked. Some asshole in HR did it and put it up there, and they're not even necessarily looking for exactly what's on that sheet. A lot of the stuff on that sheet is to, to, to make you not apply for it, to, 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 to narrow down the field of candidates. So you tailor your resume toward their bullshit. So I don't send the same resume to everybody. You have two or three versions of your resume, and when you look at something you're applying for, you, you dink on it a little bit, and that includes fibbing, and it includes exaggerating. It doesn't, claim, it doesn't include claiming to be able to do anything you can't do. But it might be claiming to have done something you can do and have done but didn't quite exactly do it there, if you catch my drift. So give yourself a title and give yourself something you did. Do not put down self-employed. That is not what you put down. 
You know, I would put down um, podcast host and audio editor for the survival podcast or something like that. I mean, I don't. So I'm a unique thing with what I did. It, it's totally off the off the radar. However, I'm a hell of a marketer, and I've proven that with what I've done here. Of course, if you're successful, you probably aren't going back. Uh, the other thing is you're not going back where you were. If you left in upper management, you're not going back to upper management unless you're really lucky with what you find. And you find somebody that's really desperate and willing to take a shot with you. You're going to have to take a, a little bit lower of a position. right? And like I said, when they say you're overqualified, so that's, that's awesome. They say, what? That's awesome. I'm overqualified, and I'm willing to take the job. Let's get started. And I mean, say it just like that, or whatever works for you. I'm overqualified for this job. That's all. everybody else interviewing for it. Screwed then, right? Well, uh, I mean, seriously, like I know what your 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 pay range is on this, and I obviously can do the job being overqualified for it. So I'm the best deal you're going to have walk through that door. Let's talk about how to make this work. Stop taking no for a damn answer, okay? You're a person that worked your whole life had the balls to go out and do something on your own. It didn't work out quite right. That happens. Most businesses do not survive five years. Okay? Don't be, don't be ashamed of it and push back. Don't take no for an answer. Don't make it obvious what happened on your resume so that you get the interview. And network, network, network. You need to be going to Chamber of Commerce meetings, etc., Talking to people. And don't just, well, I'm looking for a job. Well, we're not hiring. Okay, I'll go talk to this other person. Well, what do you do? Who do you work with? Who are your customers? How can I help you? I might know somebody that, you know, be that person that they feel like, geez, you know, well, we're, we're a fencing company. It's not really what you do. Now, you're right. It's not what I do. But what, what, tell me about what you guys do that's different than everybody else. My neighbor's got a tore up fence. Maybe I can pass your business card on to him and then follow up with that guy. I talked to my neighbor and that jerk doesn't want to fix his fence, but I did want to thank you for taking the time to talk to me. And, you know, if you know anybody that's kind of in my field and I'm open to maybe doing some other things, you, do you know who does that? Nobody. Nobody does the stuff that everybody knows they should do and everybody can tell you what to, but nobody does it. And it isn't that nobody does it. One percent of people do it. And if you reach out and you meet enough people fast enough and you make the impression of this guy's hungry, this guy wants an opportunity, this guy's good at helping people, this guy takes an interest in people, somebody's going to turn you on to somebody that's going to give you a chance. And when you've had that gap, all you need is someone to give you a chance. Because what you'll quickly realize is it, it, it does make sense in that situation to take something below you. And once you do, you either blow up in that opportunity into something else or you get the gap nasty. You know, it's like when you go fishing and you can't catch a fish and you finally catch that one little fish and like you saw it getting the stink off you. You, know, you get some blood in the boat and all of a sudden you catch other fish. That, that's what you're doing. You're getting it off you. The next thing is take any damn job you can get. Deliver pizzas, What? I don't give a shit what it is. You know, go take any job you can get starting out and, and get out and meet people and do something. Go volunteer. Go Think about who volunteers for things like Habitat for Humanity and stuff like that. You know who does it? A lot of times it's entrepreneurs 
It's people that are well off with money. It's people who are retired. They don't really have to worry about it anymore. Well, why are you here? Well, actually, I'm out looking for a job. And I can only, you know, I'm doing everything I can with it. But I just can't sit at home and do nothing. So I thought I'd come out and help some other people and maybe meet some folks. You start meeting people that way, you're going to meet somebody that's going to make a phone call for you. you you got to take a different approach than what everybody else is doing because you're different than everybody else. So when you follow the same pattern everybody else is taking, you stick out in a bad way. When you follow your own pattern, when you take a totally different approach than everybody else is taking, your uniqueness stands out in a positive way. It, it, it may not be that simple to do, but it's that simple to try. And you have to try enough until you find one little chink in the armor, and then you pick at it, and you pull at it, and you prod at it, and hopefully you find two or three little chinks like that, and you're doing it to three or four different places at the same time, and one of them cracks and lets you in. That's how you do it. You don't look desperate, but you do look hungry. You don't look like, I need you more, you know, need you more than you need me. What you need to look like is, I'm looking to help somebody, and I'd like it to be you. You have to become a salesman even if you're not going for a sales position. There you go. With that, we've wrapped up another episode. Hope you guys enjoyed it. If you did, remember two main ways to support the Survival Podcast. One, become a member. Becoming a member is cheap. It really is because you know the cheapest thing it can be? Free. You know what's even cheaper than free? You getting paid. So it's not cheap or free initially. It's 50 bucks a year, 5 bucks a month. Yeah, you can be a member for only $5 a month. And what you do is you become a member. Then you get your login information. Then you log into my private members area. Then you look at all the companies that give discounts. You kind of make a mental note of it. Maybe you print it out so that it's there so you don't forget about it. And then whenever you're going to buy something, you say, do any of these people that give discounts sell the thing that I'm going to buy? If they do, you buy that thing. And you get your discount. You total that up. Guess what? You do that, and you're in this audience doing the stuff we talk about. At the end of the year, you're going to look and go, gee, I got $111 in discounts last year, and I paid 50 bucks. Well, that math is a dog that hunts, and you're going to do it again. So you're going to stay a member. I have members that have been members for nine and a half years now. That's as long as you could have been a member. And they're still members. Why? Because it pays to be a member. So consider being a member. The other way, painless way, do your online shopping at tspaz.com. That's T-S-P-A-Z.com. You go to tspaz.com whenever you're going to buy something online. Start there. No matter what you do, you help support the show. It don't cost you a dime over a dollar more than it would have cost you if you didn't do it. It takes you a couple seconds to do that. And you see all the items that I've reviewed, categorized and alphabetical and what have you. And if it's there, I own it. I use it. I spent my money on it. I do it again or I wouldn't recommend it to you. Today's item of the day is an item I, rec I, 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 I mentioned recently in my show about low-carb eating. It's the Salter Electronic Glass Kitchen Scale. When I mentioned that and linked to it in that episode, I realized I have not brought this thing around for two years. And it's an item that needs to be brought around. This thing is awesome. Um, it is the most accurate, inexpensive, quality kitchen scale I could find. I did a lot of homework when I bought this one. It runs on a CR2332 coin-style battery. Most of you have them anyway for, you know, scopes and things like that. And it, I don't, I'm going to tell you, I think I've replaced the batteries in it once over like three years. Um, 
lasts for damn near ever. It zeroes out. It measures in grams, kilograms, ounces, pounds, and fluid ounces. If you're going low carb, like I talked about earlier this week, man, especially when you're in those initial really restrictive stages, you got to weigh stuff. Because what you think isn't what is. And what I've learned in the last two weeks using it and being really meticulous and counting every carb is even when I was losing weight in the past and I thought I was keeping my carbs to a certain level, I was not. I was going significantly over. So there's that. But there's a lot. Let's say you don't give a damn about low carb. Let's say you're a baker and you make bread. One of the best ways you can improve your baking, weigh your ingredients, especially your dry ingredients, instead of measure them. What's a cup of flour? Well, how hard did you push the cup into the flour? You see what I'm saying? Uh, another thing is with the kilograms and grams, some of the best recipes out there, low carb and otherwise now, are coming from you know bloggers and vloggers over in like the UK, uh, New Zealand, Australia. Everybody but us uses the metric system. Well, you don't even have to do the conversions then. So if you're looking at a recipe and it calls for a certain number of grams of baking powder, it's just then it's got a zero button. So let's say you're making something, you're going to weigh out 10 different ingredients. You throw a bowl up on there, hit zero. And it says to put in you know, 10 ounces of something. Throw 10 ounces in there. Then hit zero. Then put an ounce of this and, and whatever. And even if you want to do fluid ounces at that point, hit zero and pour in until you get to X number of fluid ounces. And this whole thing's like 24 bucks. I've had mine over three years. Check it out again. It's made by a company called Salter. Very well reviewed. Passes the test on fake spot. Absolutely awesome little scale. A lot of times when you see pictures of food and stuff on my uh, countertop, you'll see it in the background. And my wife used this thing forever. We don't really use it for the same more, but for quality control. We had a, a, a size of egg. If it went under a certain size, it didn't get sold to customers. So anything that looked close, you threw it on that scale. It was just the way to go. Um, again, though, even if you don't need a scale... Do your online shopping at T-SPAS. No matter what you buy, you help us out. With that, let's talk about our song of the day. We are talking about songs this week from 1989, 30 years ago. And, you know, I mentioned how, like, the Richard Marks song we did earlier this week, Not Really in My Wheelhouse. Guess who was in my wheelhouse, though? Molly Crew, man. If you were an 80s kid, especially, like, in high school in the 80s, I don't know how you got away without listening to Motley Crue unless you just weren't into that kind of music, man. Uh, it was everywhere. And this is like one of their kind of just fun songs. There's a lot of their songs that are serious or kind of heavy or whatever. This is like one of their like just fun-ass songs. It's called Girl, Don't Go Away Mad. Girl, Just Go Away. Um, I think that song could be a theme song for a lot of people out there. Uh, you, want, you want them to go away. But this song actually comes from the standpoint of being in a relationship before you're really ready to be in a long-term relationship and realizing, hey, this, th this is a relationship that's not going to result in a marriage, and if it does, it's going to be a disaster. And we've kind of grown to different sides of it, and we just need to walk away from each other, uh, which is actually a very mature way to handle a um a, a, a situation, even though the song comes from a sarcastic place. Here's what the people that actually wrote and performed the music say. Bassist Nicky Sticks told the uh, Rolling Stone, I saw that line in a movie somewhere. I can't even remember what movie. I thought, great idea for a song. A little tongue-in-cheek and a little sarcasm there. Uh, vocalist Vince Neil added, that's a great song. We've been playing it for years. I love to play the guitar and sing that song. It's kind of a feel-good song. 
when that song comes on, everybody wants to sing along with you. I know that this was definitely something like, if you're in the car driving and that one crappy radio station we got in the coal region came in and this song came on, you did end up with everybody kind of singing it. It takes me back to 1989. takes me back to those years, those high school years in the 80s. Hopefully it does that for you too if you're about my age. If not, I hope you still enjoy it. With that, it's been Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast, helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough or even if they don't.